This past week marks the observance of the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. Coming shortly after the festive New Year's celebrations of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur is a somber day of atonement. It marks the true closing of the previous year, a time when we can all privately do that one thing that often seems the most difficult, apologize. We're also reminded of an important reality. We can shout our blanket apologies out to God, the universe, or whatever abstract concept we believe in, but ultimately, true atonement lies in apologizing directly to those who we've wronged. That can often be much more easily said than done. Frequently, the United States responds to affronts with quick, vengeance-seeking retribution. Whether or not that serves us better than true justice is a far more complex matter. But there is no denying that we have gotten quite effective at it. The tragedy of 9-11 deserved a swift and furious response, no doubt. But the ensuing wars have left many people wondering if the U.S. really made the right decisions along the way. What this conversation tends to miss, though, is that Al-Qaeda, the group responsible for 9-11, did not spring up overnight. And when the United States announced our intention to invade Afghanistan following 9-11, with the express purpose of toppling the Taliban government, the public was left understandably confused. If it was Al-Qaeda that committed the atrocities of 9-11, why attack the Taliban? The reason given by the Bush administration was that the Taliban government of Afghanistan was a safe haven for terrorists, and that the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks were believed to be residing in Afghanistan. Today, we know it was far more complicated than that, but that's a conversation for another episode. Still, the connection between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban wasn't entirely a smokescreen. In 1996, a burgeoning Islamic fundamentalist group launched an underdog offensive against the recently installed Western-friendly Afghan government. The country was in disarray after nearly a decade of conflict against the Soviets. The fundamentalist group was largely comprised of Diobandi Muslims, who followed a revivalist Sunni ideology that had been developing for several years. The group, however, took the philosophy in a more ardent, militant direction. Eventually, they called themselves the Taliban, and with a fell swoop, they pushed the weakened Afghan transitional government into the hills and took power for themselves. In the years that followed, the Taliban would indeed harbor numerous fundamentalist terror groups and provide them with training grounds and money. If this is all seeming a bit too familiar to you, you're not alone. But how, you might ask, did an upstart fundamentalist group who numbered no more than a few thousand at their inception in 1994, end up taking over the country. As is often the case in modern world history, the United States certainly had a hand. The Soviet-Afghan war went largely unnoticed at first in the United States. Some public humanitarian interests sprang up, but nothing large materialized. That was, until Congressman Charlie Wilson decided it was time to shoot down some helicopters. Well, it's too bad that... Uh that the American people are not uh, privy to, to the situation there because it's one area in which uh, the good guys are winning, believe it or not. Uh, there being an enormous number of Russians killed, the Afghan freedom fighters have just got indomitable courage and determination. Charlie Wilson was a congressman representing Texas's second district, which, at the time, covered a considerable portion of the Houston Democratic population. As such, the district was a blue stronghold, and Wilson held his seat from 1973 to 1997. Known as Good Time Charlie, Congressman Wilson had a few habits that made him controversial. For one, his consumption of cocaine and propensity to liaise with prostitutes at inopportune times pushed him into one of numerous ethics investigations of the Congress in the 1980s. But Good Time Charlie also had another hobby, quixotic political cavalry. He had a motto that the more he said yes, the less he often had to do. It was a culmination of these traits, along with his dashing good looks and large congressional pocketbook, that made him the right person at the right time to personally spearhead the U.S. response to the Soviet war in Afghanistan. As a member of the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee in Congress, Charlie Wilson took the CIA budget for covert operations in Afghanistan from a few million to a billion dollars. He was informed and guided by Gust Avrakotos, an idiosyncratic but undoubtedly brilliant CIA regional head, and Michael Vickers, a young CIA paramilitary expert and weapons savant. Together, they spearheaded Operation Cyclone, one of the largest covert operations in U.S. history. However, 
The program ballooned out far beyond anything they imagined. Soon, the United States was pouring nearly endless amounts of money into the pockets of whichever Afghan militia group appeared to hate the Soviets the most. And you guessed it, this is where the Taliban reappear. For several years, the fundamentalist groups that would coalesce into the Taliban received millions of dollars of U.S. aid in the form of weapons, militant education, and strategic support. Today, many critics look back at this chapter of U.S. international intervention as being one of the root causes of 9-11, and thus the global war on terror. It does often make me wonder if the U.S. has more to apologize for than we let on. Far too often the U.S. seems to get away with the broad apology, but not the direct one. And while the U.S. government did not fly planes into the Twin Towers on 9-11, it's hard to ignore that the conditions that led to that horrific tragedy were the direct result of U.S. actions in the Middle East and Central Asia. For his part, journalist George Cryle documented Charlie Wilson's efforts in his book, Charlie Wilson's War. The book, released in 2003, was subsequently adapted by Aaron Sorkin for film. Sorkin, who was hot off his time as the creator and writer of the hit NBC political drama The West Wing, was brought in by actor Tom Hanks to write the adaptation. Hanks was eager to tell the story of Charlie Wilson with wit and creativity, and with Sorkin writing, the final piece was simply to convince aging comic legend Mike Nichols to direct. Released in 2007, the film Charlie Wilson's War stars Hanks as Wilson, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Avrakotos, and Julia Roberts as the conservative, Christian, Texas socialite Joanne Herring. Together, this odd family of clashing political ideologies came together to shape the fate of Central Asia, the Middle East, and later, much of the world. I'm joined today by two guests. David Marshall is a U.S. political history academic who has worked on several local and national campaigns, including Obama 2012, Sanders 2016, and a handful of Florida state elections. Joshua Brown is a high school history teacher and film academic. We will discuss Nichols and Sorkin's take on Operation Cyclone and the life and times of Charlie Wilson, and some of the greater questions that still get under our skin about U.S. covert involvement in Afghanistan prior to and after 9-11. On this episode of When They Fell. actually like a week or two like two weeks ago rather than just now but um i did watch the birdcage mm-hmm. uh, uh a couple nights ago which is another mike nichols film i don't know have you guys seen yeah yeah of course I think, i'm sure you've seen the birdcage i don't know At some point i have i think which is crazy that like it comes out the year that defense of marriage act is signed and it's one of the 10 highest grossing comedies of 1996 Right. I mean, like, yeah. one of the high, not just comedies, one of the highest, like, top 10 of that year domestically. <laughs> like, which that's insane that The Birdcage was one of the top 10 movies of 1996. Right. I mean, yeah, a, a unabashedly flamboyant, uh, you know, LGBT film, definitely, in, in especially in the 90s. A remake when, of a French comedy. <laughs> right. A re- exactly. A remake of a French comedy. And, you know, my, my initial thought, like, I, I was thinking about the film when when it ended and like uh, Gene Hackman's you know reaction to the uh, to the unraveling of everything at the end and how he's just kind of it's very much gay panic where he's like he just doesn't understand it's not even like a, it's like he just doesn't understand but it's it was so like sincere in a way that I was like I was comparing it in my mind I was like what else and I went to like Ace Ventura and the way that Ace Ventura handles gay panic and it's just like. God, it was like that, like Birdcage was weirdly ahead of its time. Where it's yeah. Like... yeah, like I I think like, you know, it's been a while since I've seen it. Like I saw like really young. So like, but from my memory, I remember it being a, like, you know, the Robin Williams character is not like, is like deliberately not a caricature, you know, like there is like, 
Yeah, it's he's weird. He's it's a weirdly straight. Uh, no, uh, that's a bad choice of word. It's a weirdly <laughs> comedically straight. Um, it's a weirdly uh, a normal kind of role for him. He is the he's the he's the anchor of the film versus Nathan Lane, who's the the far more eccentric and you know. What I'm guessing with like yeah. the birdcage, like it, I know like the Williams like character, like his performance definitely comes from Nichols being like play it straight and stuff. Oh you know, I fell into the trap, but, um, uh, but also I think like having that theater background, I, I would just imagine like Mike Nichols just being a far more progressive when it came to like LGBTQ, like, because he makes angels in America, like shortly after. Right. Exactly. Which is, you know, I think it, it's definitely more normal. <laughs> <laughs> more which is funny which is it's weird to think that angels in america is the more normal film from the two of those but or i guess angels in america is not really a film i don't know is it what would you i guess the miniseries yeah i guess i would call it a miniseries i know the only the only time i've ever watched it was all at once so but nowadays we're like oh if this miniseries is like prestigious it's a movie now right yeah the, the age-old conversation that we are absolutely not going to get solved on this podcast tonight <laughs> yeah, we should but, bring in nolan yeah and nichols i mean so does angels and his last couple of films were it's a very interesting he goes from angels in america you know doing the miniseries i think there was one Wait. film when what's in the bedroom or what's in the basement or something i, I don't even i haven't even seen it yeah like um i was like what planet are you from yeah, oh, yeah, it's a question. How are you doing? <laughs> What's your yeah. mother's maiden name? And I have to think that is probably his biggest like bounce, like like his least successful movie. Um, and it's weird too because like it's weird. It feels like one of those Warren Beatty mess misfires, and like Warren Beatty's not attached to this in any way, except for Annette Benning being in it. And I'm like, there ha- I, I I need to get to the biography, but I'm sure like. There's some Beatty shit going on there. Yeah, Warren um, Beatty just destroys one third of everything he touches. Yeah. That's what I got. Like I was reading the other Mark Harris book, um, uh, Pictures at a Revolution, and when they get to like the Bonnie and Clyde section, um, it, it, that that one is actually like okay, Beatty's actually like a good brain. Like uh, that is his. He comes onto it like late, but he is the guy who sort of shepherds the whole thing um, and got the tone of the script. But like when they were trying, because you know it's influenced by the French New Wave, when they were trying to court like uh, Truffaut and Godard to direct it, like Truffaut was like, "I fucking I would never work for Warren Beatty." Like he left <laughs> such like a bad taste. <laughs> it's funny because he's so like Warren Beatty is so obsessed with them. Like he's like even to Warren this day. Warren Beatty is like. The, like thinking about his career it's like one of those things where it's like all right like someone with a lot of vanity that is also who has good taste but also like the talent like for it it's like halfway there you know and so yeah. like it, it, it's one of those things where like surrounds themselves with like really good collaborators has a taste for it but also can have too many ideas and, and it would just fuck shit up um uh but in weird ways like you get your dick tracy and you get your bullworth and it's just hard to like fucking explain that to people uh right. like those oddities so and then you know with mike nichols i mean he does he does that film then he does closer and and then he does charlie's charlie wilson's war and that's his last film and i mean i think that's definitely an interesting kind of final act for for Mike Nichols, a guy who is so known for for comedy, for out and out comedy, and I do want to talk eventually about whether or not you guys thought this movie was funny, like funny in a traditional sense. But I think the first thing that I want to talk about is um, we're gonna we're just gonna dive straight in the deep end. Uh, I, I'm curious if you guys think that the movie uh, ascribes blame for everything that's happened since the events portrayed in the film since the uh you know the soviet invasion of afghanistan does the film address that or there's an ambiguity to it right uh in the way that it's presented but i'm curious if you guys think the film takes a decisive kind of stance on blame 
and like in the script it's a lot more explicit there's uh, there was an alternative ending that sorkin and nichols uh wanted that was shot down by hanks who's the producer of the film and universal and also charlie wilson where it like explicitly makes clear that you know um wilson's actions and stuff like led to 9-11 so what so like the thing with charlie wilson war which i think elijah you know great student of film history it's i think you and i are probably on the same page that this is one of the better like final films of like a director because usually those things go like haywire um yeah but it was a director for it was the only film mike nichols catalog that he like consider himself a director for hire so they had this hot script by sorkin and tom hanks is the producer of it and he wants nichols to direct it nichols is not his heart isn't really in in it um and he's in poor health so like shooting the like morocco scenes are like a pain in the ass for him like it like hanks said that because he was a lifelong smoker and did a lot of pot like his lung capacity was like shit and he was like 75 years old at the time of shooting um but in the original script for Charlie's Wilson's War, the the movie was supposed to end with Charlie Wilson. He's in his office and he can see the Pentagon be hit by uh, one of the planes on 9-11. And then like the ki- title card for the film was supposed to be um, like, sometimes you fuck up the end game. Um, and yeah. funnily enough, like, so like Universal, like so Universal and uh, Tom Hanks hated that ending um tom hanks said like yeah audience would have a hard time um believing that uh, for, uh that tom hanks was uh responsible for 9-11 which in my head <laughs> which when i heard that i'm like that sounds like what was the original sequel to forrest gump <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, I think the film really goes out of its way to think about the future beyond itself for the most part at all. I mean, you have one scene at the very end between Gus and Charlie. And aside from that, it really doesn't seem to spend much time thinking about, you know, it just kind of lets everything hang and lets you know that, of course, we're going back to Afghanistan and why we're going back. But it doesn't seem to spend any real time on the figures that are connected, the connected, connecting the dots between, you know, the events of the film and 9-11 and the war on terror. And by the way, that's what that was one of the reasons why Hanks and Universal did not like that alternative ending, because according to Hanks, he said that another reason why he didn't think it worked was because he felt like the film did not do enough connecting the dots to lead up to that. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it felt like something where there was a lot left on the cutting room floor with a lot of the events, because, I mean, it's a film, you have to compact it down to, you know, the runtime, but I can see how a lot of the, you know... <laughs> there's a lot of compaction that removes a lot of the dots that they would have to draw. And for me, I, I actually like the ending of the film. Like to me, like I, I think a little bit less the final shot, but like the lead up to it when they're at that party and mm-hmm. Philip Seymour Hoffman gives him like the pair, like Aesop parable um, about like the kid and the horse and we'll see. And I think yeah. that, you know, gets to the message of the film even if it's less explicit and less damning um, than what was initially planned. Right. And it's a, I think you're right that that is, that that's a condensation right there of the, of the thematic material of the film. And I think it's, it's indicative too of, I think for me, at least what the film does really well, which is kind of portray these individuals as, representations of the socio-political ideologies that they represent right and so i'm curious because you know we're talking about you know the, the blame and the ambiguity of it and um you know we have gust for example who is very much the stoic political realist we have the starry-eyed neoliberalism of charlie wilson and the steely religious zealotry of characters like uh, Joanne Herring, played by Julia Roberts. And uh, I'm curious if if you think if you guys think that the film portrays any one of those ideologies as being more correct in a way than the others. I would say it probably feels like they want you to think that Gust has the most correct interpretation given that, you know, it seems to live in this world that, you know, you, of course, we're watching this in a world where we are in 9-11, or after 9-11, we are in Afghanistan. 
you know, so you kind of know that all everything that they're hoping for does not turn out well. It, it almost feels like the film couldn't possibly tell you anybody else was more right, except for, uh, you know, the, the realist. You know, he, his goals are limited, but at the same time, he has an idea of what should come next. And, you know, it, it's almost like the film takes the line that Julia Roberts' character is, you know, a part of the problem. You know, that it seems to draw an odd line where any religious affiliation that sometimes seems to be almost a problem for the film. You know, it seems to be suggesting that hard religious feelings of any kind could have a hand in what's going on here. Yeah, I, I think like, you know, like Gus throughout the movie is sort of presented as the voice of reason. Um, and, and it's kind of weird, too, because like now I think in the year 2021, um, especially at after Trial Chicago 7, which, you know, that script was written around the same time as this script. Um, it, it, like, I feel like, like, you know, they, like, it sort of gets to the mentality that, like, you know, the Af Afghanistan was kind of the correct war, um, uh, you know, despite mishandling and stuff like that, and that we took our eyes on the target. Like, that seems like, even though that's not necessarily what um, Gus is saying in the movie, but that sort of seems like that would be his politics. Yeah. Um, now it seems like that type of Sorkin sort of neoliberalism um, has gone out of fashion. And it's a little bit like, like all their politics in regarding um, Afghanistan seem completely wrong and fucked yeah. in retrospect. Yeah. I mean, to, to use what the, the parable at the end, we have seen now and uh, it's not great. Right. Turns out giving a million to schools doesn't actually solve all the problems. Yo, but you should see the McDonald's that we built there. <laughs> <laughs> the Afghans, they love them Big Macs, you know. Um, but yeah, like, I, I, and like in the, in the movie, um, when I'm like watching it, I because I, I think sort of like the the political stuff like is sort of always in the background and what where it really what it has to say about 9-11 Afghanistan doesn't really come in until like the last act of the film and I think you know the movie's more or less you know focused on like the socio uh, aspects of it like right. and I think that's very much like the Mike Nichols of it all like uh, Mike Nichols was talking about like like again he he was not actually proud of his work on the film. Um, he was kind of unhappy with like the footage he shot. Um, he he was uneasy with some of the action stuff in the film because uh, that wasn't his forte. The stuff that he got off on was the interactions between like Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts, um, uh, and, and yeah. you know playing with that. But apparently, um, like during the editing of the film, when like. Uh, they were having discussion, like debates with Hanks in the studio about the tone in the movie and stuff like that. Uh, his longtime editor was like, yo, why aren't you putting up more of a fight? And he's like, well, it, it it's Tom's project. They gave it to me, you know? Um, and then like his editor was like, the old Mike Nichols would have just told him to fuck off, like, um, and, and made it more his thing. But I, I, it, despite that like I, I i periodically go back to this movie like watch clips of it because i really do like the dialogue especially like in the opening when you have gus break into john slattery's like office and <laughs> give that like monologue like and also the parable at, towards the end like i i think this is like even if the film feels a little bit compromised um just like the war i guess you know um i feel like you know you know, especially for a final film, it's pretty enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. You mentioned obviously the the, the beginning scene, the opening scene with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman playing Gustav Arcotos, um, and he his interaction with uh, I think he's supposed his name is supposed to be Craigley or something. Who's uh, you know presented as a deputy director of the of the CIA. Um, yeah. And Philip Seymour Hoffman kind of has a meltdown and smashes uh, John Slattery's window in and then leaves. Oddly, still a, 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 an incredibly relevant scene, obviously, in today's day and age where we have uh, a lot of discussion about uh, you know, immigrants in this country still, 
you know, I think we can all agree that's probably never going to go away as far as being a conversation topic. I mean, yeah. we can all hope, but um, but interestingly, that scene uh, allows me to kind of jump back and lay a little bit of groundwork about the the history the film portrays. Um, and I think that's an interesting place to start, right? Because what that whole conversation is kind of discussing is the way that the intelligence community had been steadily or maybe not even steadily rapidly and aggressively restructured over the last 10 years before this film is supposed to take place right uh you know um gus mentions a promise made to him by stansfield turner who is the the previous uh you know administrative the director of the cia and that's you know and we that's where you get a lot of the institutional uh policy of the the intelligence community during the 1980s uh we discussed that in the last episode of this podcast talking about donald rumsfeld because he kind of came up in a in this in the in the the same environment um so that's you know that lays the foundation right for what happens in the film and it's it's interesting because I'm, i'm curious to see if you guys feel like there's a weirdness about the film in 2021 where basically a member of the IC is as close to a hero of the film as we can get. Like he's the only like level-headed somewhat normal person in the film. <laughs> like, feels yeah. like Sorkin. But right. Yeah. So it feels like Sorkin. I mean, that's, I, that's one easy way to, I guess, talk about it, but you know, we, we look back at what happened in Afghanistan over the last 40 years now yeah. And, you know, how much blame do we ascribe to the intelligence community that's presented here as being, you know, do we feel like Gust is portrayed as an outsider to show that the rest of the IC is having problems? You know, because in the film, Charlie Wilson goes to to Pakistan and meets with Harold Holt, who is the, the station mm-hmm. chief of the, the CIA office in Pakistan, who's portrayed to be like a do nothing, like a, you know, a desk jockey who wants to keep the the situation in Afghanistan as siloed and as, as small as possible. And at the end of the film, he's kind of shown to be like, well, we blew it. Is he right? You know, now that you say it, like you kind of um, made me think of like a parallel is like Zero Dark Tur- 30 in which like the intelligence community are sort of like obsessives and like they're you know on this quest and it seems like somewhat misguided in the case of like zero dark 30 the use of enhanced interrogation or torture and in this case like the whole operation in of itself to fund uh the afghans in the soviet battle um but like it what's interesting is like they are presented as like the smartest ones in the room when like their intelligence is gonna like fucking backfire like crazy and i guess it kind of gets to like the sort the sorkin ideology that like institutions in and of themselves are fine and they must be preserved is sort of like the misguided nature of the men who run them but within them there are hard-working intelligent people who get the job done and, and to be fair and i think in this film he is questioning the job that they're ultimately doing you know yeah I mean, you see throughout the film, the goal of the of the intelligence community and especially August is not to, you know, help the Afghans or to do any kind of humanitarian or goodwill aspect. They want to kill Russians. That's their whole thing. They want to kill the communists. They're trying to win the war. And that's, you know, so they're they're looking at it from a very warped worldview where the only thing that really matters is getting one up on your rival. And if that's the goal, then well, they succeeded. But at the same time, that raises the question, was that really a worthwhile goal and was it worthwhile helping out? I mean, you know, the Soviet war in Afghanistan was obviously a horrific incident. You know, there was a brutal conflict that even makes our own war in Afghanistan look not tame by comparison, but, you know, the the death toll was catastrophic. And, you know, it raised the question of these people and who they were helping, was it really a a well-thought-out measure from the beginning? And while I don't know if the film necessarily gets into it, it, it does bring those questions to mind. 
And I would say, and, and I want to pose this as a question because I'm, I picked up on a sense in that regard, right, of cynicism towards Western involvement in the region or outside involvement, period. Um, you know, early on in the film, Charlie Wilson goes to Pakistan uh, at the behest of Joanne Herring and meets with Zio Hawk who is portrayed as a very wise and uh, savvy political leader and, you know, who, who kind of opens Charlie's eyes to the real situation on the ground, um, which kind of sets all these events in motion. But as the film goes on, I would say that external involvement is portrayed as being flawed at best, right? Zeal Hawk we get a sense later on in the film may not be the cleanest character. Uh, I think Joanne Herring says, intro, like introduces him at a gala by saying, uh, and I would just first like to say Zia did not murder Buto. Like, <laughs> yep. um, like there, which for the, the non-historians is definitely one of the prevailing theories about what happened to, to Buto. So um, he's not portrayed well. I think there is definitely a, I felt there was a cynicism to foreign involvement between uh, Israel and Egypt, right? Who are kind of presented as both being at each other's throats uh, throughout, throughout both of their involvement. And I'm curious from, from a historical perspective, how you guys kind of feel like that builds into the you know the narrative and the message of the film and also from a filmmaking perspective if you feel like that in a way undermines any elements of the film see like it, this is where it gets a little bit complicated because like when he, uh gus is explaining the zen master story the lost horse um he's kind of encouraging uh charlie to like seek financial support of the afghans try to rebuild schools so therefore they're not influenced by you know as he refers to as the crazies but as we know as you know the taliban and stuff like that um and and it's weird looking at it almost 20 years from, from the movie's release where we also see that like that type of nation building was misguided from the get-go you know and so it, it, but like you know, like it it, 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 it seems like the movie's politics are actually even more complicated than like say what it was intended, which was just you know a critique of our involvement in the Middle East and how that eventually uh, backfired us on nine eleven. Yeah, I would think it seems to me it's it's less actual actual criticism of you know U.S. involvement abroad or U.S. involvement in the Middle East in in uh, Pakistan Afghanistan all that um, and more kind of we're having to clean up the mess that was made at this point it, you know it, it doesn't feel so much like they're saying any involvement was bad but rather that especially with that last conversation that you know you have to do it right and you know the implication in 2007 is we're doing it right now but obviously in 2021, we're sitting here going, yeah, maybe involvement overall is a bad idea and we should just stop messing with Afghanistan after 40 something years. I'm, I'm curious to hear you say that the, you felt that the film was doing it right. I do want to get to that in a minute, but I want to preface that by asking, do you think that the film uh, portrays Charlie's intentions as being good? Do you think Charlie's intentions were good uh, and not to pile a third one on, but does it matter? You know, does oh. it really matter? See, that's very interesting. Cause like in the film, you know, he's presented as this kind of sleazy politician, but like, but kind of hyper competent at the same time. And so in the movie, I think like you're like when he's trying to secure the funds and he's doing the deal making to, you know, get uh, a U.S. government support for the Soviets. I think you're you are rooting for him. I think the intentions seem noble, um, um, despite the fact that, like, you know, I would look at it a lot more cynically now. Um, and it's and it's kind of interesting too, like kind of. The other thing that like I like the other history you kind of have to talk about is the history of Texas politics at this time in the movie where the movie takes place because 
you know, this is not too long after like Lyndon B. Johnson, you know, was president and hailed from Texas. And then like Texas was a lot bluer, but like Charlie Wilson is of that streak of Democrats in Texas, such as like Ann Richards, where like they're these moderate Democrats that are like, you know, very hawkish or tough on crime and stuff like that. And so that like, you know, that type of politician and Charlie Wilson, like, you know, I kind of hate like now in like 2021, but like, you know, in the movie, you are kind of rooting for him, but also you, it does get across that he's also the sleazy politician, that there is something for him to gain from this um, uh, and that it's not 100% noble. I mean, the film definitely leans into the whole, you know, his reputation as being good time Charlie. You know, that he's he's not necessarily a serious person most of the time, but he also, like, I do think that the film wants us to believe that Charlie Wilson's intentions were good with regard to Afghanistan, that he had the best of hopes that, you know, that the U.S. could make something good happen here, that he would help these people and try to, you know, build a better, brighter Afghanistan. Whether or not that actually, you know, has any grounding in reality is entirely different, but... I think that he definitely felt that in you know through through the film. You know, like a small way that sort of like gets at the root of the character of Charlie Wilson and about like his intentions or not. It's sort of like he, you know, on the one hand, he's kind of this forward thinking like congressman in the sense that like his staff is mostly run by women, which was mm-hmm. like a first for that time. But also he's probably sleeping with a lot of the girls that work for him. You know what I mean? And so it, yeah. it, it, it's I think that kind of you know, it's a small thing, but I think it sort of epitomizes, it extends to his actual politics as well, where it's like, you know, um, I'm I'm ha- ha- trying to help out the Afghans, you know, um, in their struggle against the Soviets, but in reality, I'm trying to make sure that America's U.S. interests are being preserved. Right. And, you know, his personal, his domestic politics were also very similar. You know, he was he was also, you know, the film describes him as a liberal, and that's basically true with regard to where he was on a lot of the, you know, the issues of the day. He would, we consider him broadly on the right side of women's rights, civil rights issues, things like that, even if he was personally rather uh, undesirable in the, uh, you know, as a yeah. personal to be around. Because, like, his district is mostly made up of, like, his support in his district was mostly made up from women and African-Americans. So he's, like, mm-hmm. socially liberal, but he's also a, he's a Democrat advancing the Reagan foreign policy agenda yes. in Congress. Yes. Yeah, and, and there's definitely a sense of that. I think there's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, honestly, is uh, on after Charlie goes to visit uh, Pakistan and by by way of by way of that goes to Afghanistan to see the the refugee camps um, or rather to the border to see the refugee camps. Um, On his flight back, he relays the story to Amy Adams character um, about why he got into politics or how he got into politics. And it was that there was a local curmudgeon who was like a, a longtime mayor of the town that he grew up in. Right. Who, the, the mayor this guy like killed his dog or something by accident and charlie then mobilizes as, as he tells it he mobilizes black voters who were previously uninterested by telling them that this guy killed his dog and yeah. that's how he wins the election and it's kind of it's it's portrayed with a sort of wry humor in a way, right? Where the scene is like triumphant. It's got this triumphalism with this beautiful music and this this wonderful twilight lighting and Amy Adams character like sheds a tear and it's such a beautiful story, but it's kind of goofy in a way, right? Where it's yeah. like the foundation of his politics is built on him essentially manipulating <laughs> manipulating the issue manipulating voters and and it it definitely does not necessarily make him out to be the most uh maybe not the most intelligent you, you know josh used the 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 phrase hyper competent and i would i would agree with that he sort of innately understands how politics works and it benefits him and i'm curious now to kind of wrap this around because 
we want to talk about this film in a post 9-11 context because this film despite dealing with issues that happened before 9-11 is very much we have to recognize it's a film that was made in 2000 you know 2006 2007 and it's very much discussing the issues of the day and I'm curious if I was the only one who felt that there was definitely a comparison being drawn between Charlie Wilson and George Bush. It's funny that you mentioned that before you get to that comparison between Charlie Wilson and George Bush, when you were describing that scene, it reminded me like, oh, this is kind of like a companion piece to Nichols' other politically uh, politically driven film of, the, of like almost his late period, uh, Primary Colors, where you have this, you know, also this ostensibly liberal, moderate uh, politician who's also like, you know, Primary Colors is sort of his, you know, satirical take on Bill Clinton, right? And it, you have this Southern Democrat who is doing these unsavory things, but also you want them to win because ultimately hit their politics are better than you know, the um, you know, it's like the lesser of two evils type of thing. Uh, but yeah, like that's interesting comparing it to like George Bush, you know, like this person who, you know, is rising in Texas politics as well. And it's this person that convinced, despite being from a rich background, convinces the voters like, hey, I'm just one of you guys. I kind of just innately know how human beings work. And so I can sort of, you know, navigate uh, the political terrain from there on a base emotional intelligent way yeah and i would say right there the comparison is there in that regard i think the comparison is there at the end right where i they made the ending not quite as visceral by changing it from him witnessing 9-11 to him simply being given this medal but i couldn't help but think that there was some commentary even in that right because mission accomplished exactly he's Mm -hmm. standing there with this dumbfounded kind of expression on his face with his goofy suit that doesn't really fit him charlie did i mean is that you know it is essentially getting around to this idea that this one person is deeply involved and is personally responsible for so much of what happens in the same way that we kind of personalize george bush as the you know the person behind so much of our our current you know political situation it is it's fascinating these entire systems that are responsible for what has happened and yet we, we're personifying them around these guys who are ultimately players and you know important players in most respects but they're they're representative of a lot that's going on outside of the realm of just you know their individual personal relationships and also i think it's probably you know in 2007 i think they're also using this reagan era as like you know sort of like left-wing like rage of like see we told you so about this previous right-wing administration and the damage that they would do um and you guys didn't listen and you know as like subtext for where we're at now in 2007 as like see here we go here's what happens again when you have this like right-wing president um and getting us into like this unnecessary conflict in the middle east um uh but yeah, like it, it, I didn't, I, I didn't put two two together until you said so, Elijah. But I'm like, yeah, the ending of the movie is Bush's mission accomplished speech. I wanna, I wanna circle back now and talk about blame. You know, now that we're kind of addressing this film in in the context of of being post 9/11 media, Joanne Herring is a, was a real is a real person. I, she's still alive. I think she's in her late 80s, um, but. Wait, what's she, her take on Afghanistan withdrawal? Has she commented? I don't, I don't know if she's commented on Afghanistan withdrawal, but she's, she, I think she's withdrawn a little bit from the public view recently. Um, but she, uh, she got a lot, a lot, a lot of flack for her involvement in what happened, you know, after the Soviet-Afghan War. Uh, there's people who call her the the godmother of the Taliban. Um, which is cool title (laughs) you can definitely extrapolate from the film you could say right that her religious zealotry is portrayed as having a net negative impact on the region uh you know it's it's blind adherence to this singular moral goal is not necessarily something that benefited 
anybody in the region at the end of the day. But, you know, within the context and knowing, you know, that she's been called the godmother of the Taliban, do you think that we ascribe too much blame to to her or to, uh, you know, maybe to not necessarily religious, but moral ideology and, and it's, you know, the way that it's affected how the U.S. and how other Western countries treat conflict in the Middle East or, or you know, the global war on terror period. See, that's kind of interesting because, like, there's a parallel to, like, how evangelicals have this, like, alliance with, like, the neocons when it comes to, like, our involvement in Israel, right? Like, where it's, like... You at first you're like kind of like what is this weird alliance? Why are, are these evangelical Christians so much like hawkish when it comes to like Israel or whatever? But I think Joanne Herring is of that type, you know. Um, um, and, and my take is like, yeah, she, she deserves all. She deserves a good like she deserves that. T- she worked hard for that title, Godmother <laughs> of the Taliban. Just give it to her. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but at the same time, it, it goes well beyond, you know, an individual ideology, you know, the, the cold pragmatism of the uh, uh, CIA and, you know, other intelligence organizations that don't get mentioned in this film, but we're also involved in this, you know, it's, it's the same kind of uh, involvement, it, you know, their dedication to the goal of beating the Soviet Union is just as guilty as the, you know, ran, random religious fervor, you know, the, the, that, that didn't come out of nowhere, that, that, ideology of uh this islamist ideology that makes up the taliban didn't come out of nowhere i mean it was a part of the the support that mostly the saudis were being get, were giving to mujahideen resistance was involved a lot of education in uh, pakistan and they were funding a lot of this uh diabania education that informs a lot of the taliban's current thought process so yeah but i i, I do think there is something to be said though like you know like when it comes to Afghanistan, there is like a lot of like like these Texas businessmen, like you know, like when it comes to like you know Bush, the Bush family, which also around this time George H. W. Bush was the CIA director. Um, like I think you can't divorce that. Like some of these rich socialites in Texas also like are responsible for our decades long involvement in this conflict and some of that has to do with evangelicalism and and it's sort of unholy alliance with um um you know uh neoconservative hawkish uh foreign policy and that's something the film makes very clear in that scene with uh uh ned Beatty's character you know that there's it's essentially saying it's the exact same thing it's part two start two parts of the same thing and you know what what you want to make of that you can you know I, i've seen the parallels people have been making lately between the taliban and texas republicans i'm like guys can we just call it take a spade what it is but yeah i mean the the film does seem to agree with you on that front for sure as a as a history wonk and i know david i think josh will probably appreciate this too but it's like you know the film kind of uh makes a romana clef of a real issue right where joanne herring makes a speech and charlie kind of pulls her aside afterwards and says uh you can't you can't call things a crusade which (laughs) was actually a real you know political problem because people were so eager to do that and it's ironic because as history wonks right we it's like no that's a that's a pretty fair comparison because you know the crusades of the middle ages were uh, you know there was one good victory there right <laughs> oh, they were religious at best i mean would be we would like hope they'd be morally ideological but for the most part we recognize in retrospect that the crusades were by and large political maneuvers through and through for everybody involved and religion was held and crafted and shaped in such a way to make it uh, palatable perhaps for people who weren't going to accept the political implications of it yeah and then like it's similarly like you know the west or christians were just easy to claim that one victory that they got during one of the crusades and and then boom several others it's complete like failures you know huh. and 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 also the underestimate us constantly underestimating the complexity and nuances of the middle east too 
Yeah, well, it's, uh, it, it ultimately comes back to the fact that people have their ideologies and have the things they believe in their moral systems, but at the same time, people have the things that they just want to do for personal reasons. And often those you can use the, the former to justify the latter. And that's ultimately what you see in a lot of cases with you know, the justification of, well, we're on a crusade when she's justifying her personal friendship with the president of Pakistan. Right, as Ex exactly. As one is ought to do, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I know at every, I know at every party I just go to, I'm like, hey, my relations with the president of Pakistan is special, all right? Um, he also didn't kill Bhutto. <laughs> <laughs> so... And and I guess you know we've so now we've addressed the idea of blame in this in the post 9-11 context. So I think ultimately my big question really is do you get the sense that you know, going beyond the film now, do you get the sense that the global war on terror is or has been or was a you know a, a the way that it was portrayed frequently as a a new conflict against a new enemy in a new world or is it in a way the u.s kind of dealing with and perhaps atoning in some way for past mistakes uh, maybe atone is a stretch but you know you know it's often attributed to mark twain but there's the saying uh history doesn't repeat itself but it often rhymes and that's kind of what you see here is uh you know, you have a lot of the same figures showing up, a lot of the same places showing up over and over again. You know, the only Afghan person actually mentioned in the film was uh, Ahmed Shah, Shah Massoud, a, fam a man who was famously uh, opposing the Taliban right up until he was assassinated two days before nine the 9-11 attacks. You know, one of the people who Charlie Wilson was uh, personally very close to was Jalaluddin Haqqani, you know, who... Uh, was also the founder of the Haqqani Network, which is, you know, the Taliban's uh, kind of an association of the Taliban, who's, and his son is now the interior minister of the, Tal of the Taliban government. I mean, it just goes to show that there are always connections. You're never just dealing with anything whole cloth. It's impossible to get away with the relationship, away from the relationships that exist between what we have already done in the region and what is happening currently. See, I feel like the global war on terror is sort of, like and especially in the early years of our um invasion of afghanistan and iraq is just like a you know the u.s completely misreading the lessons that we took away from the cold war right so like we were coming and they're both kind of bookended by two bush administrations and you know we're coming off the you know fall of the berlin wall the end of the uh soviet russia and we're like you know, feeling this high that like, oh, we ultimately won the um, Cold War at the same time, kind of forgetting all the past strategic failures um, that we mostly made on this journey all along against this sort of ethereal enemy that can never be stopped, which is also very convenient for, you know, the military, U.S. military industrial complex. Yeah. I mean, the, it's taking away the lesson that we can do anything as opposed to we succeeded in spite of all the mistakes that we made. We should learn from those. Right. Interesting. It's a, it's a very interesting point. I would agree with that. It's a, um, it's a film, you know, getting back to the film, it's a film that is uh, funny for me, I think in some ways, but also kind of depressing right the 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 second to last scene where charlie actually is shown in the defense appropriations subcommittee chambers trying to you know kind of retool the package to be applied from weapons to uh, re rebuilding afghanistan essentially building schools and another one of the congressmen turns to him and says charlie nobody gives a shit about a school in pakistan and it's definitely a crushing like just like it's funny, but also like incredibly depressing. Yeah. And so I guess just generally speaking, I was curious how you guys felt about the humor of the film. You know, how, is humor the is humor the only way we can deal with such like a colossal failure of a you know an institutional disaster? Or it's definitely a tool. I mean the the, the humor the humor in the film is mostly revolving around you know Wilson's personal life you know it it doesn't really make a whole lot of light out of 
the actual the Afghan war itself that which is a deeply unfunny thing you know it gets very serious in those moments and at the end it's very much reflecting upon where this is all going but yeah no I think that in a lot of ways you need that humor because otherwise this is just going to be an incredibly soul-crushing slog it is interesting too like the humor because again it's mostly as david was uh talking about is focused more on the, like the social taboo and which is like that is definitely the mike nichols of it all uh not just like not to say that this is an aaron Sor- sorkin script like it's 100 percent a sorkin script um through the lens of mike nichols who uh, apparently during the um making of the movie he was trying his best to like have every actor like follow the script to a T and getting nailing down like the rhythms of it. Um, But like, you know, it also speaks to sort of like Nichols. I don't think is that interested in making a larger political point. Maybe Sorkin is, but I think what, uh, you know, together, I think they know that like a lot of the humor has to come from like the characters. And that's, what's really pulling us in is sort of the shenanigans of Hanks and, you know, and the ideal and finding the, distilling the ideological battles between hank uh, hanks and um philip seymour hoffman's character gust um into you know something that is palatable to the audience in in a very entertaining light way but like when you're talking about like the you know the cynicism of that scene where he's trying to get funding for the schools this time instead of the weapons it, it, it's so such a weird scene now in 2021 where it's like fuck it like even investing in the schools or it's somewhat misguided mm-hmm. um um this idea of nation building um uh, a country that doesn't necessarily want to be like us you know um and so yeah it, it, i think there is this whole movie is tinged with you know the dark irony of what we the audience know is about to happen which is 9-11 right and that's underscored i think you know they we obviously changed the more visceral ending showing 9-11, but there is still during that, that climactic, uh, you know, telling of the fable between Gus and Charlie, there's a, a very pregnant pause after Gus says, you need, you know, you need to listen to what I'm saying. And you hear a plane flying overhead. And that, that was, I believe that was actually in the script Sorkin. I think, you know, I think I guess after changing the initial ending, decided that there needed to be something, um, and so there's definitely there's a nod to it. The film vacillates pretty heavily between, you know, the personal humor and that kind of dark ironic humor of of its of its time of being a film that came out six years after 9/11. So um, I guess we can uh, we can kind of turn it around. I'm curious if you guys had any you know, final thoughts, anything we didn't cover really. Uh, I know this is, it's, it's, it's a very straightforward narrative, but there is a lot going on. So I'm curious if you guys had anything else you wanted to talk about. Uh, well, can we just say like Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance is just so like good in the movie. Yeah, right. I know I haven't mentioned it a lot, but it's, it is, I mean, it's one of my favorite performances from him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like his first Oscar nomination. No, no, no. This is coming after his win for Capote. Yeah. It came after um, Capote yeah it's it, it's it, yeah he he it, it's just and also the thing that i i think we should also kind of talk about too is that it's sort of in that in, apparently one of the other things that was going against this production was the fact that aaron sorkin's time was split uh between this and um studio 60 um writing for that <laughs> show so he couldn't like so nichols and him barely had time to like really talk about the script in an in-depth way that nichols would have liked and then also apparently you know nichols a dude from theater who likes doing rehearsals but at this point in his career um rehearsals would just turn into him just kind of recounting his career to like the cast and crew and stuff like that but like the movie um i think it sort of had a weird time in like sorkin's career and it's sort of like you know before sorkin was sort of like a screenwriter for hire you know doing you know either punch-up jobs like as a script doctor or doing something like malice but like you know but like or having like his play a few good men turned into a movie and rob reiner sort of figuring out sorkin but i think like mike nichols kind of kicks off you know the high point of sorkin's 
career um, where he's starting to now make movies that are based off of real people because then this is going to be followed by the social network and Steve Jobs where I think um, Sorkin has a much has an even better handle on those real life subject matters than than here but I think this was probably a necessary gateway to get to like the social network. Yeah, you can see you can see a lot of it tie into especially his TV writing. I mean, it, there's a lot of the West Wing in this. It's it's a lot more cynical, but it's a lot of the it feels a lot of the same way in some of the pattern that happens, the way the politics work. That you know, it, it does feel very similar in that way. Yeah, and it, it also like you know, you can tell that like this and Trial of Chicago Seven feel like they were written roughly around the same time because. I think like Sorkin in the 2010s when he's handling a real life subject matter, he's getting a lot more innovative with the structure. Whereas like here, it still has like the signature Sorkin dialogue and wit and stuff like that. But the structure of it is pretty conventional in terms of like the biopic genre. Whereas mm -hmm. like when you get to the social network and Steve Jobs, and, and I guess maybe even Moneyball to a, like a lesser extent, um, he's getting a little bit more ambitious with the narrative structure. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely agree with that. David, do you have any other thoughts? I just, you know, there's a part of me that wonders, you know, there's a point where obviously it's a film, they can only do so much with the time that they're given, but there's a part of me that wonders how long, how much do you compress a film before you're really starting to cut out content that makes it into revisionism essentially. And that's part of what I wonder sometimes watching this, that, there's, there's a degree to which, you know, the, the film makes choices about how it's going to portray our relationship with the, uh, the Mujahideen, who we're supporting. I mean, you know, the only, like I said, the only Afghan person actually mentioned in the film by name is uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud, who generally has a fairly positive image in the West, but Massoud was not actually the CIA's big guy. He was more MI6's guy. Our guy was uh, Golbudin Hekmatyar a lot more, and he's got a lot more of a... Uh, checkered uh you know image in the west and it's almost like that was such an interesting choice that they chose to pick masood as the person that the cia was backing that it 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 runs a little too close to like them trying to clean up what was going on yeah yeah and i definitely um i think that was kind of a point of contention in the the commentary by by uh, Roderick Braithwaite, I think, um, who was the, the British ambassador to Russia right after the events of the film. The film sort of smooths out U.S. involvement in a way, right? Yeah. Which is sort of funny because that is maybe stereotypically a trait we associate with British foreign intelligence operations. But it's like, no, they, that was pretty spot on for them, whereas we sort of backed the cowboys. That, yeah. was, that was more who the U.S. was involved with. And yeah, so you're right. It does. I would say if there is if there is a histor historical flaw to the film, it's probably it just it smooths out some of the edges. Yeah, it forgets the part where like Rambo helps out the Mujahideen. Like, <laughs> I, I thought that was a very you know striking omission on Sorkin's part. I was surprised by an actual omission. They didn't show the scene where Charlie Wilson was in Afghanistan and wanted to shoot down a helicopter with a Stinger missile. That, that would have been great film. Oh, by the way, another thing that they kind of like um, uh, cut out, like it's implied in the film, but like they cut out uh, scenes where like Tom Hanks is uh, doing coke. Um, mm -hmm. uh, like Hanks uh, was not particularly uh, pleased with that. Yeah, we probably can't have a film where Tom Hanks does coke and causes 9-11. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, if that's I don't fly. think America could take that one. Not in 2007. <laughs> Definitely not in 2007. No, our, our national spirit can't take that. He has all the credibility left. <laughs> Well, I really appreciate you guys' time on this. It's a, uh, it's at the end of the day, it's the subject matter aside. I think it's still a fun film. Like it's still yeah. always like a, it's an enjoyable watch. Um, and so I appreciate you guys coming on to discuss it. Uh, I will open up the floor if you guys have anything you want to talk about uh, outside of the film. Any any related books or articles or anything like that uh, that interests you that you've read or a film maybe you've watched or uh, if you have a, a charitable organization or a non-governmental organization you want to you want to plug um well you know in relation to this episode of the podcast so you called me up the other day 
And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll be on your podcast, you know. Um, but like, I had rented this uh, Mike Nichols biography from the library like beforehand, and I was like, ah, I guess I gotta start reading it. And you know, it's written by Mark Harris, one of the great like uh, writers of like film history. And so it's an enjoyable read. And 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 again, like there is a chapter on like the final years of Mike Nichols' life, and you know his relation. Um, like where he was at in his career when he was making uh, Charlie Witch Wilson's War. Yeah, and I was just going to say, you know, at the end of the day, there is one mistake that can be made, and that's just walking away and pretending like everything's over and done. And, you know, really, I think that at this point, it's not a matter of, uh, you know, donating to something like the uh, International Rescue Committee, you know, tr uh, relief aid for uh, Afghan refugees is really helpful now. Call your congressman, keep the uh, pressure on them to actually help people. Because at the end of the day, that's all we can really do. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And uh, I'll round out by saying uh, this film was based on a book uh, by George Kreil. Um, and so if you do track this movie down, it's available on uh, Amazon Prime with a Stars channel membership or through the Stars streaming service. Um, if you do track the movie down, that's great. If not, you can try and pick up George Kreil's book, Charlie Wilson's War, um, which uh, is a little bit more expansive and covers, I think, the topic to maybe less wit, but greater depth. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this episode interesting. As always, this podcast is available on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. Next week, we'll be on a short break as I will be traveling, but we'll pick up after that with a new episode on October 4th. Thank you again for listening to When They Fell.